In 2020, Java celebrated its 25th anniversary. Despite being more than two and a half decades old, it still remains one of the most popular programming languages in the world, dominating enterprise application development. In this episode, we are joined by the co-author of the recently released 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know. He shares with us his expertise in collecting the various voices, advice, and even contradicting opinions that make up the book, the relevance of Java in the low-code, no-code space, and why some programming languages, like Java, will never die. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Joining us from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. Good day, Kevin. And our guest for this episode is an independent consultant, trainer, reviewer, speaker, and author. His work focuses on patterns and architecture, programming techniques and languages, and development process and practice. He has been a columnist for various magazines such as the Register Better Software Java Report and has given keynote addresses in several conferences around the world. He's also a co-author, contributor, and editor for a number of books. One of them is titled 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know, and we'll be talking about that one today. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today is Kevlin Henney. Hi, Kevlin. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails. Hi, Kevin. Thank you very much. All right. So let's jump right in. In 2020, you came out with a new book, 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know. This is your second 97 Things book, the first one being the Programmer Edition, which was published in 2010. So what transpired within between those 10 years that motivated you to come up with this book? Uh, a few things. One of the things that I noticed uh, in putting together the book in 2010, 97 Things uh, Every Programmer Should Know, is that was intended to be a general uh, book, you know. Uh, and a few, a few years after that, there was the idea, perhaps it, what would be nice is to go into more depth. In other words, to go into a particular language, uh, to choose a language or a technology. Uh, and we kind of kicked this idea around. I kicked it around with uh, editors at O'Reilly for a while. Um, to, as it were, zoom in, allow us to get much more specific. Uh, and one of the things that happened with the 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know book is um, that one kind of came about as a sort of mutual interests of one of the languages I have an interest in, but um, it was the kind of the most likely candidate. It seemed the most broadly based. Um, it, it's been around for a long time. It cuts across many, many different technology stacks and many communities, but it is still also concrete. Uh, and we got, and unsurprisingly, we got a lot more code examples um, for that one. And a huge community, obviously. Java is still one of the most popular programming languages. Indeed, yeah, Java. definitely. Yeah. How do you go, I mean, you don't have, this is a collection of articles from different uh, writers, as I understand. Yes. And uh, it's, it's not, there's not 97 different writers, that, but the, I noticed that there's uh, some which have written multiple pieces. But how do you go? Yeah. Collating all of those developers and writers to write about this sort of content. It's a kind of a mixed process. So um, specifically, there were set by. Okay, this is turns out to be a coincidence. There are seventy three contributors. Okay. Um, 
And the reason I say it's coincidence is because for the previous book that I did, there were 73 contributors. Oh, really? Um, so it was not by design. It's only when I, uh, it's only when, uh, so I co-edited this book with Trisha G. It's only when we actually sort of went through and said, okay, who have we got as contributors? And I looked at the spreadsheet. It's just like, that's 73. That's exactly the same number as that's last weird. time. Uh, so, um, but th there's a few, there's a few tricks and tips. Some of them are uh direct invites in other words so i was uh, editing this book with trisha g from jet brains we we have an overlap in the people that we know but we also know very different people and, and trisha and i really struggled with uh some of the decisions you know from people who had submitted four five or six pieces uh all of which were good and it's just like well we we can't take them all we have a principle here um yeah, so so yeah that was so there, there was a balance so basically we, what we were looking for was a mix of things um, it's 97 things. The important thing is that, as I, I've kind of uh, alluded to, is, is the voices aspect. This is not 90. You can get an individual developer and say, could you come up with 97 things? And yeah, they could probably could. Um, this is not 97 things one developer thinks you should know. This is supposed to be a kind of sampling across the, the, the set of programs, of which there are millions. You're never going to get all of that. But that's the idea. Let's get some different voices, different points of view. Sometimes it's a different piece of information, but sometimes it's the way that somebody presents it as well. They come from a different angle. It's a novel or exciting perspective, or their code example is fresh, um, or they've got a nice anecdote to go with it that nobody else has. Did you, did you uh, have to target a specific version of Java for the book? No, we made it fairly broad based. Um, obviously, we wanted it. The book is, is pulled in a few different directions because um, one, of course, Java is version sensitive. And that is a distinction with the book, uh, the 97 things every programmer should know book, because that is not version sensitive. Um, it, 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 because it is, if you like, in one sense, a little more timeless. But we had to, uh, we were assuming people would be targeting something that was relatively current. And when we said Java, although the natural default is to assume language, we were really talking about also it's a platform. It's not just a language, so we are dealing with other languages, although most of the submissions were Java, Java language, where they focused on language. But that means that you're dealing with different technologies, different versions. Um, for some people, you know, there are, there are folks out there still on kind of 1.55, um, uh, but there are also people who are chasing every release twice a year, um, you know, keeping right up to date. Um, and we had to make sure that when people submitted things that they, we changed the, the tone or the voice as appropriate um, because they were normally, uh, in fact, we had a couple of pieces that we ended up not accepting because in the time from acceptance to editing, they actually went out of date like blog mm -hmm. pieces. Um, and that's a different thing is that a, a number of people are experienced writing blogs. And the, the point of a blog is it's now sort of for certain things. If I'm going to tell you about the new features uh, that are coming up in the next Java release, then that has a very different target audience and sense of freshness and timeliness to a book that, you know, somebody might pick up in two years time and it's still got to be relevant. So we tried to keep it as from an editing point of view, we tried to sort of change the tense or make sure that we were, re you know, people weren't saying, and here's a new feature as in super new, um, uh, but realize where the, where the cutoff points were. So for example, Java 8 is a really good kind of seismic cutoff. Uh, and that will, people will still be talking about that in years to come because it's so radically different. Um, but rather than just sort of saying, and if somebody's referring to the latest 
and they use a number, then it's just like, let's pull back a little bit from that. So it's not intended, the book was never intended um, to be, here is the latest in Java, but it should be relevant. Most Java programs are not working on the latest um, version of Java. Yeah. And that is always going to be true. That's the nature of a language at this scale. Um, once you hit a particular size, you have a much longer legacy tail. So this has to uh, appeal equally to people who are um, still learning Java from books that are 10 or so years old or code bases that are 15 years old, as well as somebody who has just been getting into it um, and still wants to learn that there's more to it than just new features. So is that the target market, people just starting out? It's a broader target market. It's it was, it, it's kind of a, it's a market for people who are either they're starting out. This is the, the book that you don't get. In other words, you maybe you've learned the syntax. Maybe you come out of college and you'll have a particular perspective. But maybe you're coming into Java from another language. Um, maybe you're returning to work. Uh, maybe you're a senior developer, um, just trying to round out things because everybody at one level or another is self-taught. Or maybe you're helping mentor somebody else. So in other words, this is, this is I want to refer you to something and say, uh, this one covers it quite well. This is a good starting point. So it really is quite broad in that sense. It's not just for newbies. It's not a how-to uh, book. It is intended for somebody who has a little bit of Java under their belt or a lot of Java and has been around Java for a long time. In fact, that's another kind of classic target audience. Um, uh, any language that has been around for a long time has people who've come into it, gone out of it, and then come back again. What's happened in the intervening period? So it is, it pretty much lives up to its title. Um, it is kind of what every Java program should know, regardless of their experience, things that are overlooked. I learned things, Trisha learned things. So, you know, in that, in that sense, I'd say that uh, uh, it, it's, it, it lives up to, it's not a specific small target audience, but I could identify different groups within the, in that very broad audience. I was just about to ask you that. Were there some contributions made which uh, blindsided you, like were, were, were really surprising? I think they were necessarily um, surprising, but sometimes it was a little detail that they would highlight, um, uh, just a sort, of a, a sort of a technical detail, either kind of language spec or something on the GC um, or just uh, a, just a perspective, or some aspects I simply didn't know about. Um, sometimes community, um, uh, and sometimes environment. So uh, there was nothing that really kind of completely threw me, uh, saying I did not know that, and that has changed my worldview. Mm. Um, but that might be more a reflection of, uh, of of somebody who's on the lookout for this, or potentially somebody who's jaded. I'm quite I'm quite happy to accept that accusation as well. Any challenges in terms of uh, like differences of opinions and um, you know uh, deciding on which angle you're going to take on a particular feature or technology? Oh, that now that one's an interesting one. So so Trisha and I were fairly clear, um, fairly clear from the outset that what we wanted was not the ninety. It's not ninety seven things that Trisha and Kevin think are the most important. Um, it it was. Um, and we didn't necessarily agree with everything, but that's that go, again goes back to the voices um, because there isn't one true answer here. You know, this is not a programming community of of uh, of fifty people, who, uh, and it's a very closed clique or anything like that. It's quite broad. There's a lot of different points of view there, and so sometimes trying to get to represent um, 
that view. That's quite an important one. So having pieces that in essence might contradict one another is not a problem. Um, although sometimes I, I, I got that with the previous book. That was an intention of mine. Um, that sometimes if you're getting a book from a single author, you expect a coherent narrative. You, you, there's a single story and a single point of view to be told. And here, that's not that was not the objective. It is a representation of what is out there. Uh, and mostly things don't conflict or contradict in a, in, in a big way. This is kind of much more of a patchwork with a little bit of overlap. But there are some things where we do end up with um, potential contradiction. And we actually sort out some of the contradictions. So, for example, we have a piece on... Um, uh, why certification is good. We also have a piece that is incredibly sceptical of certification. And, you know, once we had one, we wanted the other because we know that this is potential, this, this speaks differently to different people um, and different people have very different takes on that. So we actually sought out something to counterbalance that. Uh, I wrote a piece on, uh, on checked exceptions, um, as in, please don't. Um, uh, so I wrote a piece on that. We actually looked for somebody to try and write a good piece on, um, on no, you should use them and you should use a throws in your signatures. But we couldn't find any good ones, so that, that one didn't get included. But it, it's a case of like we actually actively sought out things that might contradict a particular point of view just to show that, yeah, maybe it's not all settled, um, that we're, we're hearing a number of voices. And it's left to the reader. You know, you read it, find where your position is. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all 97 pieces of advice. And that, I guess that's what the book is for anyway. Uh, but in, could you get, just run through a few of the recommendations made in the book that maybe even uh, the more experienced Java programmers may not know and, and run us through a um, few of oh, that's a, that's a really That's a really good question because I, you know, I, normally, I, I normally try and take the point of view, don't play, um, you don't play favourites um, yes, uh, as the editor. Um, uh, so there, there are a couple of ones that... Um, I'll pick, uh, you know, kind of pick out a couple which I think are, are quite interesting. So, um, so for example, um, in in the Java world, Java world has kind of grown up with um, unit testing being a fairly central compared to other programming language cultures. It's a fairly central idea. You know, JUnit has been around since uh, the '90s, and that also defines many people's experience of uh, unit testing. But there's this other question of, okay, what other approaches are there? So approval testing is something that I think is quite interesting. Um, and uh, there's a really nice piece by Emily Batch on that. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, here's a different point of view that you may find helpful. It may be helpful, particularly in legacy contexts, uh, but it fits right in. Um, there are a couple of uh, nice pieces that were um, a little more, um, I guess, uh, expand your brain. Uh, there's a James Elliott piece here on, uh, okay, you've got Java doc, but what about also extending it into ASCII doc? And that was kind of an interesting piece. There's a different perspective there. Okay, so he's showing you something else. What can you do What you, uh, 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 and the subtlety there? And then also the reminders, um, uh, one by Michael Hunger on benchmarking. Benchmarking is hard, is his piece. Um, uh, you know, JMH, JMH helps, but the point here is he talks a lot about the, the subtleties uh, and difficulties um, of that. And really just going in there, because there's a lot of myths when it comes to um, performance. And I think that's true of any language and any platform. But um, uh, a platform that's potentially as complex as the Java stack, there's a lot of different things going on at different levels. It's very easy to pick up myths um, you know, half-formed ideas that probably had their basis in some kind of truth or something that was true 20 years ago and is no longer true 
and it's just this kind of like constant reminder. Um, but then we also have stuff on um, kind of some fairly careful thinking. So a nice piece by Chris O'Dell, frequent, re frequent releases reduce risk. She talks about the idea, uh, we have a kind of a, a kind of assumption these days about CICD pipelines and so on. But what she does is she takes a different perspective on it. It's about risk reduction and risk management, which, which is a very different way. It, sometimes people start from the technology, say what is available. Sometimes people look at the point of view, oh, frequent releases are necessarily a good thing and probably they've been in a particular environment, but they've never really understood the motivation. And she starts from a kind of um, a risk-based um, uh, perspective. So there's a whole kind of a load of things here. Um, too, uh, a lot of diverse content there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, and then some counterintuitive pieces. There's a nice one by Thomas Ronson, how to crash your JVM. <laughs> Not oh, something okay. you want to do, you know, but there's a point in there about, um, and the point that Thomas makes is very much that it's very easy to look inside your IDE. This is my code. And you expect everything that is defined there to be the truth. But the point there is that the world of a software system goes beyond that. It goes beyond what you can immediately see. And it goes beyond the kind of the pure idealized view of the language. So what are the ways, you know, stepping outside the view of your window, what are the ways that you can crash your machine uh, and so on? So there's, there's these kinds of points of view. Um, so there's kind of, there's, there's quite a lot there. And I, I also like the fact we have a couple of, points uh, and um, counterpoints. Um, there's, uh, there's a piece by, and, and this was uh, going back to your previous question about um, uh, about sort of uh, balance and contradicting point of views. There's a nice piece in here by Gail Ollis, Don't Hide Your Tools, um, which is on IDEs, or rather, you know, don't, don't trust everything about your ID, understand the full environment. Whereas Tricia, who works for an IDE company, clearly has a different take on it. And she wrote a piece. So we were looking for that kind of balance. And that there's, if you look at both pieces, you sort of say, yeah, there's truth in both. And it helps you understand what is it that I as a developer would need to know to get the most out of my tools. That becomes the bigger message there. So I think that that's the thing I, I, I like. It's not just the individual pieces, um, but sometimes the interplay between them. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's that idea of like, you're invited to think for yourself, but um, but the point is people are putting forward different cases for different points of view. Java is an interesting language, isn't it? I mean, it, it celebrated its 25th birthday last year. It, yeah. It's been around for a while. It's not one of the oldest. You know, we've got some old languages which are having a resurgence as well. But Java dominates a lot of things. Like it dominates enterprise applications. It, yeah. Uh, it, it, and it's one of the most popular languages used today. There's, but I guess when you've got a tall poppy like that, there's also been a lot of people wanting to so, you know, predict its demise. Uh, you yeah. Know, and, yeah. There were some uh, predictions, you know, with more recently with Oracle's changing its licensing for you know, com commercial licensing for Java as well. Yeah. How has Java remained so relevant and resilient over the decades? You mentioned Java 8, for example, was a fundamental yeah. Like, is it, is, it, yeah. is it just keeping pace with technology and, and the requirements of the market? What is it? I think, I think it's a, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I think it touches on a number of things. I, the first thing I would say is that it's a popular pastime amongst pundits to predict the death of a language. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to so all, to all you listeners out there, honestly, it's not a game you want to get involved in because if you're trying to predict the death of a language, you will lose. 
Mm. Um, I, I, you know, this I actually I actually recorded a small uh, piece for a discussion uh, recently um, on the fact that languages very rarely die. Um, the, the the only cases where languages die is uh, if they are incredibly tightly tied to a vendor and were already and have always been like that and therefore occupied a particular niche that once you remove that, then the whole thing kind of disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, or that they were niche languages to begin with, uh, a very small community, perhaps a research-based language. Um, these are the languages that die. Very few languages actually die. What they, what they might do is they might slow their growth. Um, they might become kind of more moribund. They become at the point of death, but never actually die. Um, if you actually look at the, if you look at the kind of top ten languages or top twenty languages this year, uh, you know this year, um, you'll find that very few languages are. In fact, you don't find languages that are younger than five years old. Mm. Um, you know, when people talk about a new language, they mean something that's about ten years old. Yeah, um, these days, we we hear, for example. Um, Microsoft is talking about moving stuff uh, from C++ to Rust. Now, I'm not saying Rust is old, but, you know, it's it's closer to a decade than it is to half a decade. Um, that's young. It's still considered young. So th th that's the interesting thing is if you compare it to other technologies, um, uh, it, it's more like languages sometimes outlive operating systems. So languages have a really long lifetime. Um, uh, once they get in there, they're not going to move. And partly they don't move. Um, yeah, they might adjust up and down, but they don't, they don't die. That's just not a thing that programming languages do. Uh, Fortran is still in there, for heaven's sakes. People have been predicting the death of Fortran since um, the 1960s, um, and they have been consistently wrong. So the point there is Java is kind of like that. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's it's a it's it's offers you a stack. It's a it's a VM. There's lots of libraries. There's lots of open source commitment. And once you get that kind of level of connection, if it were just a thin vertical slice that you could kind of pull the rug from underneath, then perhaps it could disappear with a, a small shift in technology. But it's much more pervasive. It's much more. It's like a city. Cities very they reach a particular size and they tend not to die, or it takes a very long time for them to die. It's connected across different platforms. Um, you know, we we find you know. Kotlin on Android, for example, which is quite a long distance from um, from standard enterprise programming, uh, we find Java in education. We find it, it's it's got a presence everywhere. So, I think that rumours of its death are will continue to be exaggerated. Java, Java will celebrate its fiftieth um, anniversary um, without much trouble. Um, uh, not to say that it will be as popular as it was when it uh, turned twenty five, but it's kind of reached that point where it's fairly consolidated. It's still growing. I don't know necessarily the evolution of the language um, contributes to people coming into it. Although that's certainly for some people, you know, they've, they've got some of the frustration that they may feel sometimes with um, the verbosity. Classic, classic Java is very verbose. Um, the language is now very different. If, if you look at the language from a kind of uh, kind of a, a linguistics point of view it almost contradicts all of all of its original design aims in terms of its syntax uh, it was originally supposed to be incredibly explicit about everything uh, minimal conversions minimal surprise min minimal kind of like extra stuff put in by the compiler these days honestly everything's deduced um, uh, it's, it's, it's the polar opposite um, and sometimes seeing you can see code that collides these two eras um, it's it's uh, uh, so it, 
So it's got that kind of slightly postmodern feel. It's a bit of a mishmash in places. But for some people, that's enough. They can feel more comfortable. It's, oh, I don't have to go to another language to get um, collection pipeline style programming. Um, I've got streams in Java. Um, I've I've got uh, I've got lambdas in Java, and that satisfies an itch within me that now that makes that a little bit easier. I'm okay with not having an even lighter syntax, uh, or if I do, I can switch to one of the other JVM languages. And there's that kind of comfort that you can write a whole load of code and then say, I'll switch to another JVM language. I'll do a bit of groovy here. Um, and it's still all of that stuff you've written uh, or somebody else wrote for you a, de a decade back is still there. So I think that, you know, I, it, it kind of keep, there's a little bit of fashion in there, but I think a lot of it is that kind of like consolidation and entrenchment. You mentioned to start out as a verbose language. And of course, the trend towards technology generally is to abstract layer upon layer, whether it be Docker containers on VMs, on kernels, on bare metal, or, or um, you know, uh, low code on the JVM, you know, running on uh, multiple Linux or Microsoft or Macintosh type operating systems or whatever it may be. The, the, the trend is to abstract. So of course, in, in the modern programming world, the latest flavor of the month is uh, low code platforms mm. and uh, targeting citizen developers, no code platforms. How does now low code has its touted benefits for the enterprise where, where Java dominates is uh, productivity benefits. You, you end up mm. you know, producing more stuff, the greater output in less time. Uh, but one of the uh, unexpected benefits in some ways is if you're producing less code, then that code is easier to manage and maintain on an ongoing basis as well regardless of who wrote it down the track. Mm. So how do you see uh, load code uh, platforms fitting into Java's dominance in the enterprise space? Is there room for both? Is low code going to be running on the JVM? Is uh, how's, it, how's it going to fit together, do you think? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one because I've had a number of discussions recently about the low code, no code phenomenon. Uh, and, you know, there's a number of different takes on it, one of which is, yeah, we've seen this before and it was not successful last time around, um, all the time before that, all the time before that, you know, that's going back to languages that die, um, most of those actually fall into the kind of classic uh, waves where people were trying to do this. We, we also saw a lot of model-driven architecture type stuff uh, in the 2000s. Again, the, the rationale for that was the same. But at the same time, we should also look at where the success stories are. And actually, there are some there are long-standing success stories. Um, let's talk about spreadsheets, because spreadsheets are a programming platform. Um, and perhaps it's uh, it's one of those things that might annoy a few developers who think that they're being very cool by getting into functional programming to discover that the accounting department in your company has been doing functional programming for longer than you have. Um, because a spreadsheet is kind of like a pure declarative model. Uh, if I'm doing Excel and I'm not using VBA, then actually I've got a very pure programming model there. Now, most people, so here we have something that has a universal adoption. And it, when we start looking at um, and we don't think of it as a coding platform, but it has little coding extras. And it, 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 when we look at how that's been used, then we start getting a feel for how it's going to co how this kind of stuff coexists with other development. And I think perhaps the productivity thing is a bit of a bit of a red herring. I don't think that's really the issue. Uh, it, I think it is the the citizen developer that's the issue. And that's not a productivity question. Um, you know, spreadsheets did not necessarily boost productivity. Um, 
of an individual uh, or a particular role in a, uh, in, in a company that was previously um, not uh, was previously a programmer role, it's going to allow certain people to do certain things without they wouldn't even even thought of using a programmer or engage you know saying hey let's talk to software development and get them to do something for us. Um, they would have probably just mashed together a bunch of spreadsheets uh, or a bunch of emails and said, I've copied a link here and done this and that. And so what it's done is it's just given a kind of name to that. Um, you know, it, it's it's very much. So I think sometimes when people are looking at the low code option, they're uh, particularly the no code option, when they're, they're looking at it from what does it mean for developers? I think they're looking at it from the wrong point of view. Um, spreadsheets never stopped people developing. Um, it just opened up the number of people who were using certain applications, um, you know, uh, cameras and phones didn't stop professional photographers having a, 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 a you know a business. It just opened up a different set of possibilities, and I think that that certainly the no code aspect, and then nudging into low code. That's much more the uh, some people will be coming in from the programmer side, but others are going to be coming in from other numerate disciplines. And I think that's the this is kind of liminal area when you actually find out where people come from when they end up in software development. You got a few people who went through a kind of computer science or software engineering background, but then you got a lot of people who came through sort of middle territory. Um, you know, they they, they did a, they you know, they came through the sciences or um, they th- came through business, uh, you know, business with a bit of IT, or and they ended up picking up programming and then moved into software development as a whole. But for a while, they were kind of a little bit in between. And that, you, if you start looking at that as a grouping of people and a set of opportunities, rather than thinking of it as productivity, think of it in terms of people. Who, who does this benefit? What does it do that is different? Um, because that's the bit, that's why it might stick around. And that, and, but it will also show you, um, and this is the thing that spreadsheets teach us, is most people use spreadsheets to put numbers and shapes you know, they, they use it for pretty formatting. So most people do not use the advanced view. There's a few people who really get into formulae. And then there's a few people who are superpower users who get into actually, yeah, I'm going to use VBA and stuff like that. So that, again, it's that power law type thing. And that, I think, again, tells you something else about the shape of the adoption uh, and why certain things might stick where uh, and certain things might not stick. So I think that when we look at Java and the JVM from that point of view, I don't think it's... The Java stuff, it may come about for low-code stuff that takes advantage, yeah, takes advantage of particular business workflows. In other words, here's a typical business workflow. You get to customize the front end. You're never actually going to see the Java code, but it's all Java libraries. Somebody has provided that. And it's running on the JVM, so you've got this multiple targeting. You can shove this in the cloud really easily without having any deep discussion um, uh, about native platforms and so on. Um, and so, therefore, you've got something that, is there as long as you've got access to those libraries that that's that's incredibly powerful so it it will be that it will continue to be there but somebody needs to provide that they need to provide the workflows um you want so, to describe our loco platform <laughs> there you go you know so i think that so i think that that is where so i i although i know people are pushing the the kind of the productivity aspect i don't think that's the issue i don't think that's going to make the big difference i think it's to do with I think it's to do with communities and possibilities uh, there, um, and because I've never, I've, I've never really seen any of the productivity benefits of anything that claimed to, you know, was pushed just for productivity reasons, really take hold for that reason. Um, normally, these things have taken hold for if they've stuck, they've stuck for other reasons, um, and that I think is, I think that's where that's what could be a differentiator here. 
Kevlin, author of 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know. Thank you for joining us today. How can our listeners uh, follow you and stay in touch with the things you're talking and doing? I am easily stalked pretty much everywhere because my parents were generous enough to give me an internet unique name. Um, so Kevlin Henny um, is easy to find uh, on, on the web. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is my name. Um, ditto for uh, uh, Instagram. You can find me um, on LinkedIn. Uh, that actually just as Kevlin. I think that's my uh, my LinkedIn URL. Uh, so yeah, I'm very I'm very easy to find. Uh, you know, I, I have a. I'm definitely not uh, dark on the internet. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!